The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Before we get to the big stuff, I am so disappointed. Yesterday, I woke up to the news that an A-list celebrity had finally decided just to lay it all out there. My compatriot, Brian Adams, the soi-disant groover from Vancouver, uh, although personally he's never struck me as that groovy, Brian Adams was supposed to be playing three nights at the Royal Albert Hall in London. But because of the COVID, he can't. So he Instagrammed the following observation, quote, Tonight was supposed to be the beginning of a tenancy of gigs at the Royal Albert Hall, but thanks to some bleeping bat-eating, wet-market animal-selling, virus-making greedy bastards, the whole world is now on hold. My message to them, other than thanks a bleeping lot, is go vegan. Unquote. I don't think to judge from the F-words that that was written by his public relations manager. Well, the CBC activists posing as reporters managed to rustle up a Chinese-Canadian social justice professional grievance monger to accuse Brian Adams of racism, and suddenly it was a big story. And I was thinking, well... In this case, if it's a choice between vegans and Chinese-Canadian professional grievance mongers, I'm with the vegans. You go, Bri. As Kate McMillan, the queen of Canadian bloggers, correctly put it, if you think this virus came from the Wuhan lab, you're a paranoid conspiracy theorist. And if you believe the official version that it came from the Wuhan wet market, you're a racist who needs to be cancelled. Gee, it's almost like you're not allowed to mention China at all. But since you're going to get it either way, why not just say what you think and let the chips fall? So I was momentarily impressed by Brian Adams' emphasis on the momentarily. By the close of business, the PR lady had gotten to him and Brian had done the usual groveling apology. He's a vegan, so he won't eat bat, but he'll eat crow. So the groover from Vancouver turned out to be just another dumb and dumbier from British Columbia. Which left me with a bit of a hole, because uh, for the first time since Cuts Like a Knife was in the top 40, I was going to play a Brian Adams hit on the show. Oh well. Waiter! This uh, this bat special on the menu. The the bat is a real Wuhan. Yes, of course, sir. Excellent. I'll have the Wuhan. To really love a Wuhan, to really taste her, to really know her deep inside. Gaze in her eyes, squeeze her web feet, and spread her wings when you want them fried. Then when you find her lying helpless on your tongue, you know you really love that Wuhan. When you love a Wuhan, you get to the wet market early When you 
love a Wuhan, you tell the clerk she's the one. She needs some ginger, some soy, and a couple of fine chopped scallions. And then you'll really, really, truly, truly, really, really love that Wuhan. May 13th, 2020. Yeah, I might work my way through all his hits. Everything I do, I do for the Chinese Politburo. Just when I thought I couldn't get any more disgusted with the American judiciary, uh, this hack jurist Emmett Sullivan pops up. He's the judge in the Michael Flynn case. There is, in fact, no Michael Flynn case because the prosecutors have thrown in the towel, admitting that there's no there there. No materiality, no underlying crime. Uh, no means of proving what the government alleges. But Judge Emmett Sullivan is itching to send Flynn to jail anyway and doesn't see why a little thing like the government of the United States abandoning its worthless case should stop him. So instead of just dismissing the case with prejudice as the government has moved, he's now inviting amicus briefs on the subject, which means Flynn's torment will continue for months and that if enough left-wing activists file briefs arguing that Flynn deserves to be seriously screwed anyway, Emmett Sullivan will toss him in jail just for the fun of it. He, he, he just wants some lefty legal scholars to provide him with a, a bit of a fig leaf. And Lawrence Tribe and Eric Holder already champing at the bit. Truly, this is a bent judge willing to torture America's already perverted version of common law into a joke of justice. I may file an amicus brief myself. I did um, for the uh, Supreme Court in the interlocutory appeal of something to do with the Michael Mann nonsense. This is so intolerable, especially in the face of the daily growing mountain of evidence that the true assault on the rule of law is not by Bill Barr, but as I first wrote a couple of years ago, by the outgoing administration taking advantage of the stupid, worthless, crappy transition period, November, December, January. Where are the constitutional fetishists on this? When are they going to actually speak up? Or are they going to wait for it to happen again? If, if uh, as seems increasingly unlikely, anybody ever elects a Republican pres president again. The outgoing administration... As I wrote, as I said for the first time now, over two years ago, the outgoing administration decided to screw over its successor with the object of ensuring that the incoming administration would be so unable to perform its duties that it would collapse. This is, as I said on Monday, Banana Republic 101, and hey presto, Emmett Sullivan is a Banana Republic judge. Indeed, what's uh, most interesting about all this is that much of it happened, most of it happened, when the Republican Party supposedly controlled both houses of Congress. They knew what was going on, but it's almost like they would have been happy to see Trump toppled by deep state plotters in early 2017. God knows the strength and resilience you need to stand up to being screwed over on every side. But say what you like about Trump. He withstood it in a way I can't imagine Jeb or Kasich or whoever else of those uh, 17 pygmies would have been capable of doing. And the country prospered.
or it did until March. To go back to the phrase Brian Adams used before he buckled, no, not the effing and blinding, but this one, quote, the whole world is now on hold. The whole world is now on hold. I think that was true in March, when what was happening seemed extraordinary and temporary. But it's not on hold now. During the lockdown, our leaders are building a new world to greet us uh, whenever our front doors are thrown open. According to some surveys, 40% of lost jobs are never coming back. According to Forbes magazine, if airline travel ever comes back, there will now be a four-hour check-in with no lounges, no restaurants, no bars, no cabin baggage, permanent face masks and surgical gloves, immunity passports, blood tests, biometric screening and disinfection tunnels, all operated by the same halfwits who've given us the useless and now actually life-threatening TSA security theatre for the last 20 years. After Osama bin Laden dispatched his planes, the so-called free world got more authoritarian. Just to take the most obvious example, Obama, Brennan, Clapper, Comey and co. used the same all-powerful surveillance regime put in place after 9-11 to get the goods on Michael Flynn and the rest of the Trump team. The same process, that same authoritarian process is already underway again now. And just as the post-9-11 authoritarianism is accelerating, so too is the post-9-11 open borders tsunami. You have to endure a four-hour check-in if you're flying to visit your granny in Des Moines, but the world can walk into Europe and North America, as has been happening every day throughout this lockdown. Nancy Pelosi's latest $3 trillion relief bill will make it impossible ever to deport any illegal immigrant ever again. In Cherbourg, Jean Ducine, the president of a French advocacy group for migrants, has just been murdered by a migrant. There's a metaphor for the Western world. Bit too obvious. You couldn't stick that one in a novel or a play. Meanwhile, the all-knowing Dr Fauci is telling us not so subtly that the pretext for the new authoritarianism, the virus, is here to stay anyway. There will be no magic bullet, no vaccine, no cure. And so it's all but certain that he... Dr. Fauci cannot permit children to return to school in the autumn because without any available treatments, it's too dangerous to let kids out in the world. And it is dangerous. A man at Victoria Railway Station in London went up to two of the ticket office ladies, announced that he had the virus and spat in both their faces. Both got the Covid. One of them died. Belly Mujinga, 47. Belly Mujinga died a fortnight later. Is that just a weird one-off? Who knows? After three months of this thing, nobody knows nothing, except that all the reassurances from just a few weeks ago, you don't need masks, it's just till we flatten the curve, we'll have a vaccine within six months, oh, and a V-shaped recovery, all the reassurances have been abandoned. And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. Good news! As of today, an Englishman is free to sit on a park bench. 
either in splendid isolation or with another designated person of sufficient social distance. Hitherto, one had to be taking exercise. Exercise was not defined in the new regulations, and so sitting on a London park bench for too long could attract the attention of the Metropolitan Police. Hello, officers. Right, hi, so if you don't remember me, I'm Tom, I'm Peace to Drive, so I work at Lambeth Headquarters. We spoke about 45 minutes or so ago. We did, yes. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you, officer. How are you? I'm very well, thank you for asking. So when we spoke earlier, I'd said, I'd ask you why you're out. You said you were exercising mentally. I am, yes. Okay. I said, well, I don't think that's in the spirit of what's happening. Well, I'm in the spirit of social distancing. I'm sat here on my own. I'm not infecting okay. anyone. You know that's the actual spirit. All right. You know All right, so what I'm going to ask is, would you be willing to go home? I am willing to go home once the sun sets, yes. Okay, well you've been sat here for about an hour or so. I have, yeah indeed, you've exercising been... mentally. I know, which is not one of the valid reasons to be out. Well it is, valid reason, exercising once a day okay. is a valid reason under the law. And what our disagreement is about is whether this is exercising mentally. It is, yes. So I don't well, I'm, I'm sorry but the law doesn't specify what form the exercise has to take. It doesn't. Well, there you go. So I'm within my rights to exercise mentally once a day outdoors for as long as I like. And this is where the disagreement is going to arise. Right, OK. So the letter of the law, what does it say? It's exercising. Right, which I'm day. doing, yes. I'm meditating okay. here by the lake, right. by the river. Well, my interpretation of it is that it's physical exercise. But that's your interpretation. That's not what Yours the law is says, is it? OK, and the only way we're going to find this out is by being tested in some way. Which I Indeed. OK. Okay, so what I'm going to ask is I'm going to ask if you would like to take a slow walk home. Uh, I will once the sun sets, yes. I'll okay, take a slow walk home. Today? Mm, probably in about another hour. Alright, so that's a bit too long for my liking. Well, that's not to my liking. I, okay, I like, okay. you know. So, what I'm going to point out is that you are out in breach of regulations. I... Not really, no. I'm out in, in right. total... Okay. Compliance with regulations. I'm out exercising so, once a day, exercising so, mentally. That's what right. the regulations so, say. That was a lady called Cheeky Effie Kerry a couple of weeks back in Richmond in southwest London. And uh, after those words, things escalated with the constabulary accusing the citizen of, quote, being out of the house without lawful excuse. Being out of the house without lawful excuse. Uh, sorry, I'm exercising. Okay, but we're disagreeing. I have that. a lawful excuse and I'm going okay. to go shopping. Is it uh, against the regulations? No, so not at all. Unless... I'm allowed out to exercise and to okay, shop. Madam. I'm out here to do both of those things. All right. Exercising and shopping are lawful in England, for the moment, but an interlude between exercising and shopping is not. So they arrested her. With the time at 13 minutes past six, I'll be arresting you. The arrest is under section 24 of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. Mm -hmm. okay, in that, I require your name and address in order to process you for the offence of contravening the coronavirus. Right, are you going to place me in handcuffs now? No, I'm not. I don't you know, mind. Madam, Look, you, you're you know, allowed madam. to take me to the station if you want to. You're going to have to. Right, well, that's what we're doing now. Yeah, please. Okay. Yeah. So, could you come in the van? Yep. Alright, let's go. Okay. Uh, are you going to place me in the handcuffs? No, I'm not going to handcuff you. Okay. Well, I am reasonable, yeah, and I'm reasonably applying my right to exercise once a day. 
Yeah, by the way, you didn't, when you gave me that caution, you didn't ask me, do you understand? I notice on Facebook or YouTube or whatever it was that most of the commenters say all this silly woman had to do was just go home when the police told her to. Yes, that's quote-unquote all she had to do. It's amazing how quickly you get used to the end of freedom of movement. And it's disturbing how the suspension of that right, initially in the interests of flattening the curve, uh, has now become semi-permanent, as in a wartime occupation. And even as freedom of movement still extends to hundreds and thousands of fake refugees arriving on England's shores each day. My friends in the UK say they have never seen more police on patrol than they have in the last two months. So if, as her critics say, Ms Carey is an attention seeker seeking to provoke the policeman, she is in the novel position for an English woman of recent years of having no end of policemen to provoke and no end of their attention to seek, as she noticed. God, all of you officers, just for me. Yeah. I should be flattered, really. When you're being stabbed on a London street, there's never a policeman around. When you're being doused in petrol by a grooming gang who then dance around you with lit matches, there's never a policeman around. But sit on a park bench and a dozen emerge from the bushes. Perhaps that will change under the new freedom to leave your home for the purpose of park bench sitting. But I sense both people and police have accepted this shift in their relative powers, and it feels like it's here to stay. Evocative essays, scintillating stories, timely transcripts, even satisfying songs. All of these and more live on at steinonline.com for members of the Mark Stein Club. You've heard him on the radio and seen him on TV, but that is just the tip of the iceberg. From the Stein Online back catalogue to exclusive access to Stein's new content, membership in the Mark Stein Club is a must-have for fans of America's undocumented anchorman. Tune into Stein's nightly tales for our time. Join the conversation in one of his fortnightly live Clubland Q&As, or sit back and take in a Sunday poem. Mark Stein Club members also get advance notice of Stein's live appearances. Join the Mark Stein Club now by heading to www.steinonline.com slash club. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. Presidential train rides go awry. The women of Wyoming and Radio Telegraphic Entertainment. It's May 1920. A hundred years from today. Your world news update, the messy aftermath of the war to end all wars rumbles on. Troops from Poland and the Ukraine have retaken Kiev and Odessa from Soviet Russia. In Mexico, President Carranza and most of his government fled the capital by train shortly before Alvaro Obregón entered the city with his troops and took the presidency. Two days later, Carranza's train was seized and most of his cabinet was captured. But the uh, outgoing president managed to break through enemy lines along with all the coins he'd taken from the Mexican treasury. It was a daring but brief escape. 
President Carranza has been murdered in his holdout in Pueblo State. A presidential train journey ended more favourably for Paul Deschanel, President of France. En route to Montbrisson, President Deschanel awoke in the middle of the night, felt a draught, tried to close the window and fell out of the train. Fortunately, it had slowed to about 40 kilometres an hour as it approached a junction and he tumbled down onto a sandy roadbed. Monsieur le Président then walked almost three kilometres down the road in his pyjamas until he encountered a Monsieur Lotti, an employee of the PLM, the Compagnie des Chemins de Fer de Paris à Lyon et à la Méditerranée, who didn't believe the pyjama-clad man's story that he was the President of France, but agreed to walk him into town anyway, to the level crossing keeper's house. Monsieur Deschanel's aides did not discover his absence until the following morning. The president's erratic behaviour has raised concerns in recent weeks following an incident in which His Excellency received the British ambassador completely naked except for his ceremonial decorations. The president was naked, that is, not the British ambassador. In America, Senator Warren Harding, a Republican candidate for president, has pledged a, quote, return to normalcy. But normalcy has been entirely overthrown in the town of Jackson, Wyoming, which became the first American jurisdiction to elect an all-female government. A quintet of women was elected by a two-to-one majority over their rival male candidates. Grace Miller was voted in as mayor, along with the town council of May Deloney, Genevieve Van Fleck, Faustina Haight, and Rose Crabtree, who defeated her own husband, Henry Crabtree. The mayor and council then appointed women to serve additionally as town marshal, town clerk, and town treasurer. Imagine being in Ottawa and hearing a phonograph record being played not in the room nor in the building, but in Montreal. Yet that's what happened at the Chateau Laurier this month when, thanks to Marconi's radiotelegraphic equipment, a meeting of the Royal Society of Canada in Ottawa heard Chief Marconi Engineer J.O.G. Gann announce in Montreal... Hello, Ottawa. We will now play a record for you. Oh, how I want you, dear old pal of mine. Each night and day I pray you're always mine. Sweetheart, may God bless. John McCormack's famous recording of Dear Old Pal of Mine, as heard direct from station XWA in the Marconi building in Montreal, all the way to the Royal Society meeting at the Chateau Laurier in Ottawa, in what is believed to be the first wireless transmission of musical entertainment anywhere in the world. The membership were also treated to Annie Laurie and... Believe me if all those endearing young charms. Dear 
In sports news, a game between the Boston Braves and the Brooklyn Robins ended after 26 innings, setting a Major League Baseball record. The score was tied 1-1 to after nine innings and then continued for another 17 innings, all scoreless, before being called for darkness. In crime news, Nicola Sacco, an anarchist draft-dodging shoemaker, and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, an anarchist draft-dodging fishmonger, have been arrested for the murder of two men during the robbery last month of the Slater Moral Shoe Company in Braintree, Massachusetts. Sacco and Vanzetti are believed to be associates of Andrea Salcedo, who fell to his death two days before the arrests from the 14th floor window of the offices of the U.S. Department of Justice's Bureau of Investigation. Also in news from the crime world, Chicago mobster Big Jim Colosimo was ambushed by a hitman who stepped out of the cloakroom at his restaurant and put two bullets in him. Big Jim died at that famous restaurant, Colosimo's, where he had held court for years and welcomed so many glamorous guests, among them Enrico Caruso. Almost two weeks after her sudden death on May the 1st, her father's birthday, Crown Princess Margaret of Sweden has been laid to rest in Stockholm. The Crown Princess was a cousin of Britain's King George V, granddaughter of Queen Victoria, daughter of the Duke of Connaught, former Governor-General of Canada, and sister to Princess Patricia, Colonel-in-Chief of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Princess Margaret died while eight months pregnant with her sixth child after a mastoid operation. Her coffin was carried into the cathedral in Stockholm to the funeral march by her favourite composer, Chopin. As the Swedish Prime Minister Hjalmar Branting told a grieving nation, the ray of sunshine at Stockholm Palace has gone out. Princess Margaret was 38. A hundred years from today, a hundred years from today. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Andrew, a Calgary, Calgary, Alberta, Calgary member of the Mark Stein Club, writes... 
Mark, there seems to be much angst about the new normal, particularly the normalised suppression of non-essential travel, entertainment, restaurants, occupations and, of course, people. This angst and anger is justified... But could we be missing something in the fog of nostalgia for the anti-corona world of 2019? I found that hardship often brings out the worst in some people, but it can bring out the best in others. If the problem with our civilization is its comfortably decadent obsession with post-civilizational absurdities like climate change and gender fluidity, how is it possible to reverse this trend without some hardship and scandal? Western civilization and culture were not born in the arms of convenience and luxury, but it seems we irrationally expect it to regenerate itself in such an environment. Good points, Andrew, good points. But what you call uh, comfortably decadent obsessions are the hallmark of several of the great uh, dystopian tales, including... Our current serialization of the machine stops by E.M. Forster. If you're the average Western slacktivist and your life is tweeting about climate change and gender fluidity, then lockdown world does not much disturb you. If anything, the frontier between your safe space and unpleasant reality is just being more effectively policed. Uh, so the comfortably decadent side of you endures via Skype and Instagram while the real world outside your door recedes further and further away. And I would note uh, as well that uh, the big social, big social media, the cartel of woke billionaires that increasingly controls all human knowledge, has actually taken advantage of this lockdown uh, to further shrivel the bounds of discourse on Facebook and YouTube and its other platforms. Now, it's true that those who venture outside into that real world are going to have to learn tricks closer to the way it worked in, you know, Vichy France, say. Uh, who you know who can find you a workaround against this or that so-called emergency imposition and what you can give him in return for him helping you out. All the tricks of survival that my mother's family learned in German-occupied Belgium. But unlike occupied Europe, we've given people a way to avoid all that quote, hardship by staying indoors with their gizmos. Furthermore, it seems to be agreed now that we're never going back to early March 2020. But what parts of that world we're discarding are not agreed? Most people on the right, I think, know that that world has died because of the actions of China uh, and its lapdogs at the WHO. But most of the general population don't know that at all. And they don't know, and I don't think many people on the right yet know, that that world was always an illusion. Um, because the Chamber of Commerce right gave the commies all our manufacturing, they're the Morlocks, as I put it in After America, we are the Eloy, so we either make exotic $6 coffees with sprinkles and or whipped cream, uh, or we do little pop songs on our, on our little uh, Chinese-made gadgets, or we do transgender studies. But we're now at the stage where the Morlocks are coming out in the daytime to prey on us, and like the Eloy, 
We look at the death and the devastation and then sigh and go back to Instagramming about gender fluidity. The butch-up, the very necessary butch-up, if it comes, will be confined as it always is to a very small proportion of such a people. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. As Mark Stein Club members may recall, when we turned one year old, I hosted a cavalcade of number one hits with me talking to Andy Williams, Bananarama, Artie Shaw, Lulu, uh, and other artists who've had number one records. And then when we turned two years old, I hosted a cavalcade of number two hits with me talking to Julio Iglesias, Chuck Berry, Men at Work, and other artists who've had number two records. And I suggested that this format was going to seem totally lame by the time we reach the club's 38th birthday. In fact, it's headed south well before that because uh, much of the material is located in my presently inaccessible reel-to-reel tape archives in my locked-down offices uh, far away from where I'm sitting now. So in lieu of our one-hour annual special, we're doing our number three hits piecemeal According to What's to Hand, last week we had Peter Noon, Herman of Herman's Hermits, talking about Wonderful World, number three in New Zealand. This week, from 1985, number three on the Billboard Hot 100 in America, number three in Canada, number three in Sweden and Norway, and it's a show tune from a West End musical about an American chess grandmaster and a Soviet chess grandmaster going head-to-head in Thailand. The first Siamese musical since The King and I, so don't miss the Yul Brynner reference. Bangkok, oriental setting and the city don't know what the city is getting. The creme de la creme of the chess world in a show with everything but Yul Brynner. One Night in Bangkok, from the musical Chess by Tim Rice, formerly of Rice and Lloyd Webber of Evita and Jesus Christ Superstar, and Benny Anderson and Bjorn Alveus, formerly the blokes from ABBA, as in Dancing Queen, Waterloo and all the rest. When you've been part of a permanent partnership, people always want to know what it's like working with some new fellows. And Tim Rice and I talked a little about that a few years ago. 
Tim, you're the only one here who's had a, a, a kind of long exclusive partnership like that. Do, do a composer and a lyricist grow together in, in that relationship? I think I did with Andrew. We both started out together and uh, it seemed to work well. But the strange thing is we only actually wrote together for about oh, seven or eight years. So we've been not writing together for much longer, yet people still <laughs> seem to lump us together. I certainly think in my particular case, it was of benefit to me to work with other composers and working with Stephen Oliver and with Bjorn and Benny, particularly when I came to work with the guys from ABBA on chess. I, I mean, as a great fan of theirs from way back, one felt very much on one's metal. Bjorn was a sort of catalyst between me and Benny in that, in, in, in that he was involved very much in the music and then he would give me a nonsense lyric and sometimes the nonsense lyric to the tune that they'd come up with was so strong, I used the line, like one night in Bangkok makes a hard man humble. Bjorn wrote that. Really? I mean, I've had a lot of praise for that line yes. and I'm taking it. Yes. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but that was such a great opening line. dummy lyric, or nonsense lyric, as Tim Rice calls it, that deservedly wound up in the final text. Lots of songwriters dash off a dummy lyric just to help them remember the rhythmic stresses of the tune. Uh, Paul McCartney's original nonsense lyric for Yesterday, All My Troubles Seem So Far Away, was scrambled eggs, oh my darling, how I love your legs. And Ira Gershwin's for I Got Rhythm, I Got Music uh, was roly-poly ravioli. But One Night in Bangkok Makes a Hard Man Humble has got to be the biggest-selling dummy lyric since Irving Caesar rattled off Picture You Upon My Knee with T for Two and Two for T as a placeholder until he could come up with something better. I once wrote in a newspaper that Louis Armstrong's record of Hello, Dolly! was the last show tune to hit number one. And Tim Rice wrote in to correct me very politely by pointing out that that honour belongs to the fifth dimension uh, with This is the Dawning of the Age of Aquarius from Hare. But Tim, as always, is far too modest to note that in the long drought of show tunes on the hit parade in this last half century, his own song from his own Broadway and West End musical is the one that's come closest to replicating the feat of Louis Armstrong and the Fifth Dimension. It's difficult to get a big, splashy take-home tune out of a show about a cerebral game like chess. But when it goes right, there's no stopping it. Here's Mike Tyson having a crack at that chess song. Bangkok, all the city, the city don't know what the city is getting. The trip the trip and the trip road and the show with everything but you grinning, you know? One night in Bangkok and the world's going oyster. The bars are temples, but the pearls ain't free. You find a garden and the golden closer. And if you're lucky, then the gods say she. I can feel the devil walking next to me. Benny, Bjorn, and Tim, as sung by Mike Tyson 
in a version of One Night in Bangkok that seriously ought to make an extremely hard man very humble. On this third birthday of the Mark Stein Club, we'll have another number three song for you next week. I'll be here this evening with our encore presentation of A Tale for Our Time, all too appropriate for a lockdown world, The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster. Do join me for that. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.